Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. You know, every week I'm getting requests from friends asking about how they can find our podcast easily. And with that in mind, we want to invite you to subscribe on the link below this video. And if you go a step further and click on the bell next to the subscribe link, you'll get a notification every time uh, we post a new video. We're so grateful for your support and hope you are enjoying hearing from our six Cedar Fort authors who are loving the Old Testament and hope you're getting a little bit more comfortable as you go along in the study as well. This week, we're studying Genesis 12 through 17 and Abraham 1 and 2 with Casey Griffiths, the co-author of the book, 50 Relics of the Restoration. You know, this story with Abraham starts really importantly with telling us what it was that was driving Abraham. In other words, he had a deep desire in his heart that caused him to seek for certain blessings that he ended up receiving from the Lord. This state of Abraham's heart is an important one for us to ponder and to also try to emulate ourselves. I love this verse from Isaiah that tells us to look unto Abraham your father and unto Sarah that bear you. For I called him alone and blessed him and increased him. And that is Isaiah 51 verse 2. If we're to look to Abraham and Sarah, what were some of the qualities that led them to become these faithful parents uh, that uh, received the new and everlasting covenant that we often refer to as the Abrahamic covenant. Well, looking at Abraham chapter one in the first two verses, it tells us that Abraham specifically was seeking for the blessings of the fathers. And amongst those blessings, he was seeking for the priesthood and the right to have the priesthood in his family lineage and through that priesthood to become a father of many nations. We ask ourselves with Abraham's own father, Terah, being an idolater, how is it possible that Abraham knew what blessings to seek for from the fathers? And especially, how did he know to seek for the priesthood? We read that it was the priests of Elkanah who put him on the sacrificial table and that they were uh, worshiping a God that had come from Egypt. So what was it that helped Abraham to understand that there was an actual true priesthood of God or of Yahweh Jehovah that he ought to be seeking for? The Institute Manual for the Pearl of Great Price uh, tells us that it is likely that the prophet Noah may have been alive during the early years of Abraham's life. And in fact, that same manual, and again, that's the uh, Pearl of Great Price Institute manual, tells us that there are many ancient Jewish writings that record that Abraham spent many years in the house of Noah and Shem and received instruction from them. If we keep this in mind, it might help us to understand then how it was that Abraham was able to discern truth from error and why it was that he was seeking for these specific blessings of the fathers. As a convert to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, I often wondered what was my heritage in terms of these promises and blessings that had been given to the fathers before. And as I searched back in, in my uh, genealogy, 
it was really quite remarkable that I found many, many early ancestors from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But before that discovery, I took comfort in knowing that, after all, I was a daughter of Adam and Eve, and the covenant, or the new and everlasting covenant, was first given to them. In Doctrine and Covenants 107, it tells us that Adam prophesied unto the latest generation. That means he prophesied concerning each one of us, and he sought the blessings of the priesthood that they might come through his line to all of his posterity. So these beautiful blessings are ours, regardless of our heritage, as our teacher Casey Griffiths will describe to us today. There is another scripture that has always stood out to me, and that is the Malachi scripture, which is uh, in the last uh, book of the Old Testament, and which many have looked to for years uh, to see that fulfilled of Elijah coming and turning the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children. However, when the Lord dictated that prophecy to Joseph Smith in what we have as Doctrine and Covenants section two, uh, there's an important addition to that prophecy. And it reads like this, um, behold, I will reveal unto you the priesthood by the hand of Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And note this, and he shall plant in the hearts of the children the promises made to the fathers, and the hearts of the children shall turn to the fathers. If it were not so, the whole earth would be utterly wasted at his coming. What are those promises that are meant to be planted in the hearts of the children through the spirit of Elijah's return? Well, we might look immediately to the promises that we've been reading about that were given to Adam and Eve, and then to Enoch and Noah, and now the promises that have been given to Abraham. As President Russell M. Nelson has reminded us frequently, we are the children of Abraham, whether by birth or adoption, we are entitled to these same promises. I hope that we might look to Abraham and Sarah as our examples, as Isaiah has urged us to do, and that we will seek what is the state of our heart? What is it that we are desiring? The Lord has told us that he will answer us according to the desires of our hearts, and that's in Psalms 37 verse 4. So I pray that we might be inspired as we listen to Casey Griffiths today as he talks to us about Abraham and Sarah and the Abrahamic covenant that we will explore those promises and that we will seek the Lord and that we might seek these same blessings in our lives. And I just um, am so grateful for this opportunity to study together and so grateful to be able to hear from Casey today. Uh, we always love Casey. And don't forget to be sure to uh, subscribe on the link below. Hi, everybody. My name is Casey Paul Griffiths, and uh, I'm one of the authors of 50 Relics of the Restoration. And it's my privilege this week to walk you through Genesis 12 through 17 and Abraham 1 through 2. This is a really, really important passage because it's the best uh, set of chapters that explains the Abrahamic covenant, also known as the new and everlasting covenant. So 
let's dive in. First, um, the, the listing is Genesis 12 through 17, Abraham 1 through 2. It's probably better if you start in Abraham chapter 1. Chronologically, that's where the story begins, and then it rolls into the events that happen in Genesis 12 through 17. And uh, prior to this point, if you've been doing Come Follow Me, you should have already read Abraham 3, which talks about pre-mortality, and Abraham 4 through 5, which describe the creation of the earth. Abraham 1 through 2 is Abraham's backstory, and you've already read a lot of the book of Abraham, but I thought it might be useful uh, for those that might not be familiar with a, a brief introduction uh, to the book of Abraham and where it comes from. So the book of Abraham is kind of uh, unique. Most Latter-day Saints are familiar with the origins of the Book of Mormon. Uh, most know a little bit about the Joseph Smith translation, which produces the Book of Moses that Joseph was instructed to uh, bring back the plain and precious things that were taken. The book of Abraham, which is found in the Pearl of Great Price, has a really, really unique origin story, and that is that it's something that comes to Joseph Smith. The Book of Mormon prophesies in 1 Nephi 13 that other records would be brought forth after the Book of Mormon, and this is an example of that, maybe the most unique example. What happens is uh, there is a man named Michael Chandler who is traveling throughout the United States uh, with a set of mummies and papyri scrolls and papyri fragments uh, that he has, and he's going around displaying them. Uh, Chandler claims to have gotten these from Antonio Lobolo, who's a fairly well-known Italian uh, explorer that uh, specialized in Egyptian antiquities. We don't think that Chandler was related to Lobolo, though he claimed to be at the time. But to make a long story short, Chandler hears that there is this prophetic figure uh, in Ohio and goes and meets with Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith meets with Michael Chandler, examines the mummies and the papyri, and determines that they're genuine and declares that they're the writings of Abraham and Joseph in Egypt. Um, Joseph raises the funds to purchase both the mummies and the papyri, and they go into church custody after that. In fact, the mummies um, are, are present as late as Nauvoo. You could go to Nauvoo and Lucy Mack Smith, Joseph Smith's mother, was in charge of the mummies. If you gave her a nickel, she'd show you the mummies and the papyri. Well, uh, Joseph Smith commences work on translation. And we don't know about the writings of Joseph, which he says are there. He never publishes anything. But starting in 1835, in the summer and fall of 1835, Joseph Smith begins um, translation and produces uh, the first chapter and parts of the second chapter. So what we're doing today uh, was was translated in 1835. Uh, then later on in Nauvoo, specifically the spring of 1842, he's able to return to the project. There's a whole bunch of crazy stuff that happens between then and there, so he can't quite get back to it. And he publishes the Book of Abraham as we know it uh, in the times and seasons in Nauvoo with facsimiles one, two, and three. Now, these um, texts, the Book of Abraham texts, are eventually taken and put into a volume produced for the British saints, the saints in Great Britain, called the Pearl of Great Price. And over the course of the 19th century, uh, a lot of the British saints immigrate to America. They love the Pearl of Great Price so much that they launch a movement to have it canonized. And the Pearl of Great Price is canonized uh, under the direction of the uh, only British president of the church so far, that's, that's John Taylor. Now, there's a little bit of controversy surrounding the Book of Abraham, and I want you to be familiar with that too, and that is that the mummies and the papyri stayed with Emma Smith when the church traveled west. Emma refused to, to give them to the church, and eventually she sold them, according to her son Joseph III, to a museum in Chicago. In the famous uh, Chicago fire that happens in the 1890s, the museum burns down, and we just assumed 
that the mummies and the papyri were destroyed at that point. However, in the 20th century, uh, some papyri fragments were discovered in the New York Metropolitan Museum of Art. And these papyri fragments were glued to the back of a map of Kirtland, Ohio. So we assume that these fragments are linked in some way to Joseph Smith and by extension are linked to uh, the Book of Abraham. In fact, one of the fragments uh, clearly has facsimile number one uh, on it. Uh, so, so there's a link there. Um, the church was able to obtain the fragments, both Latter-day Saint and non-Latter-day Saint Egyptologists have translated the fragments, and the fragments aren't the Book of Abraham. Um, they're an Egyptian text called the Book of Breathings that was a funerary text. Now, this doesn't invalidate the Book of Abraham in any sense of the word. Uh, a couple of things to consider, first of all, are that uh, there are numerous people, some close associates like Oliver Cowdery or W.W. Phelps, who saw the papyri itself and described things that aren't on the current papyri fragments that we have. There's complete strangers. Joseph Smith wasn't shy about showing the papyri um, to people, and they also describe things that aren't on the papyri. So it's possible that um, we just don't have the scrolls. They were either destroyed or they were uh, lost. They're somewhere out there right now that are the source of the Book of Abraham. Another theory is that the Book of Abraham was received directly by revelation. Um, like the Book of Moses was. I'm totally comfortable with either one. I just kind of want you to be familiar with the controversy. And if you'd like to, you can go to the Joseph Smith Papers website, and it's not too hard to find the actual papyri fragments themselves and some of the other uh, writings uh, surrounding the Book of Abraham, including some of its earliest manuscripts. So the Book of Abraham has this semi-controversial origin, but the best proof of the Book of Abraham is the same as the Book of Mormon, to read it itself and immerse yourself in the doctrines and see how important and critical this is. The Book of Abraham gives us the backstory of one of the most famous figures in the entire Bible. You see, Abraham just kind of shows up in Genesis 12 as a fully a formed figure that, well, not fully formed, because you'll note as you're reading through these chapters, the name that he goes by is Abram, a Hebrew term that means father. And his wife isn't called Sarah, she's called Sarai. Um, this is the story of how Abram becomes Abraham. And it's told partially in Abraham chapter one, and then the story transfers over to Genesis 12. And we're going to walk through all that today. So go with me, if you will, to Abraham chapter one. And uh, this gives basically the origin story behind this great Old Testament hero. He starts out in verse one, in the land of Chaldeans at the residence of my fathers, I, Abraham, saw that it was needful for me to obtain another place of residence. And finding there was greater happiness and peace and rest for me, I sought the blessings of the fathers. Now, what are the blessings of the fathers? He explains, the right whereunto I should be ordained to administer the same, having been myself a follower of righteousness, desiring also to be one who possessed great knowledge and to be a greater follower of righteousness, and to possess a greater knowledge and to be a father of many nations, a prince of peace, and desiring to receive instructions and to keep the commandments of God, I became a rightful heir, holding the right belonging to the fathers. So Abraham, when we meet him, is this seeker. He wants to know the truth, he wants to hold the priesthood, and he's very specific about the priesthood he wants. It's the priesthood that belonged to the fathers. In verse 3, it was conferred upon me from the fathers, came down from the fathers, from the beginning of time, even from the beginning or before the foundation of the earth, to the present time, even the right of the firstborn or the first man who is Adam or the first father, through the fathers upon me. 
Now, for someone who um, desired to be a seeker of righteousness and to be a father of a righteous nation, Abraham actually has a surprising origin, which is he starts to un, un, unroll what happened to him uh, and that he didn't come from a great family. Um, in a lot of ways, Abraham is the opposite of Nephi, who notes he was born of goodly parents. Abraham was not born of goodly parents. We don't know anything about his mother, but he mentions in verse 5, his fathers had turned from righteousness and from the holy commandments which the Lord God had given unto them, unto the worshiping of the gods of the heathen, utterly refused to hearken to my voice. And he mentions the names of the gods that they worship. They're mostly Egyptian gods, Elkanah, Libna, Mamakra, Korash, the god of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you can see these gods illustrated in the explanatory material that accompanies facsimile one in the book of Abraham. That's probably another reason why you're familiar with the book of Abraham. It has pictures. Um, now, this isn't just uh, a kind of minor deviance. Abraham goes through the lengths of the depravity that were happening in his community and demonstrates how courageous he was to stand up to this and to preach against them. If you jump down to verse 11, he talks about the priests of Elkanah who had offered up upon this altar three virgins at one time. These virgins are the daughters of Oneida, one of the royal descent descended directly from the loins of Ham. Uh, so three princesses from the lineage of Ham are described as being offered up here. And why these virgins were offered up because of their virtue. They would not bow down to worship gods of wood or of stone. Therefore, they were killed upon this altar. And it was done after the manner of the Egyptians. So when Abraham speaks up against this idolatrous worship, he knows what the stakes are. It's likely that these three young women were friends of his, at least acquaintances. They were killed for the same reason that Abraham is now uh, in the crosshairs, which is that they wouldn't bow down and worship idols. And so one of the first things that, that the book of Abraham adds to our understanding is that Abraham is kind of a flower that grew out of a, a cement pad. He, he grows up in a really, really bad environment, an environment where to stand up for righteousness or to worship God is something that can get you killed. And it's not surprising that because he's outspoken, eventually he is targeted. Verse 12, it came to pass the priests laid violence upon me, that they might slay me also, as they did those virgins upon this altar. So Abraham basically explains they come for him, and they try and take him. This is what uh, facsimile number one is representing. Now, in the middle of this sacrifice, just as Abraham's life is about to be taken, he said, I lifted up my voice unto the Lord my God. This is verse 15. The Lord hearkened and heard, and he filled me with the vision of the Almighty. And the angel of his presence stood before me and immediately unloosed my bands. The Lord speaks to Abraham and says unto me, Abraham, Abraham, behold, my name is Jehovah. I have heard thee and have come down to deliver thee, to take thee away from my father's house and from thy kinsfolk into a strange land, which thou knowest not of. Now, can I just add, the most famous story that most people are aware of about Abraham is the story of Abraham and Isaac. I can't tell you how much meaning this chapter, Abraham 1, adds to that particular story. Uh, it, it would have been horrible enough for any father to be asked to sacrifice their son as Abraham was, but now you know that Abraham's backstory is that his father tried to sacrifice him. Um, that makes it so much more incredibly difficult because the person that rescues him, the God that saves him from being sacrificed, then several decades later commands him 
to engage in sacrifice. And if Abraham hadn't had as much faith as he had, it might have been easy for him to say, I know that this is wrong. This is what happened to me. Fortunately, he's not asked to sacrifice Isaac. It's a test of faith. But this episode just adds intensity to the level of that test. Well, why does God rescue him? He takes him out of this difficult environment he's in and tells him what he's going to do with him. Verse 18, I will lead thee by the hand, and I will take thee and put upon thee my name, even the priesthood of my father, thy father, my power shall be over thee. As it was with Noah, shall it be with thee. But through thy ministry, my name shall be known in the earth forever, for I am God. So Abraham is told that he's being called to the ministry. And in, in a series of passages, probably most clearly laid out in Abraham chapter 2, Abraham starts to have this covenant given to him that's going to be so important. So let's flip to chapter two and you'll note a couple of things. Um, Abraham departs out of the land. He takes Sarai uh, as his wife. Uh, his, brother has a nep- his brother has a son named Lot that kind of accompanies Abram on his journey. And then in verse three, chapter two, the Lord said unto me, Abraham, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And Abraham departs along with Lot and the people that he cares about uh, to be a minister to bear my name in a strange land, which I will give unto thy seed after for an everlasting possession when they hearken to my voice. Now, the beginnings of the Abrahamic covenant are right there. Uh, God's going to give him a land, okay? But the meat of it, to go down to verses 8 and 9, in fact, 8, 9, 10, and 11 are probably the best short Uh, summary of what the Abrahamic covenant actually is. Go to verse 8. My name is Jehovah, the Lord says to him. I know the end from the beginning, therefore my hand shall be over thee. I will make of thee a great nation, and shall bless thee above measure, and make thy name great among all nations. Thou shalt be a blessing unto thy seed after thee, and in their hands they shall bear this ministry and priesthood unto all nations. So there are three P's of the Abrahamic covenant. The first one is priesthood, priesthood, okay? And here's how the Lord explains this blessing of priesthood. Verse 10, I will bless them through thy name, for as many as receive this gospel shall be called after thy name, and shall be accounted thy seed, and shall rise up and bless thee as their father. And I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And in thee, that is, in thy priesthood, and in thy seed, that is thy priesthood. For I give unto thee a promise that this right shall continue in thee and in thy seed after thee, that is to say the literal seed of the seed of the body, shall all the families be blessed, even with the blessings of the gospel, which are the blessings of salvation, even life eternal. So Abraham is going to be the progenitor of this royal priesthood that is going to bless the people of the earth and bring all people unto him. So this is where we kind of have to encounter or deal with the idea of a royal family in Scripture. Um, We believe uh, in the right of kings and in the importance of families. That's absolutely clear. The, The New Testament opens with the Savior's lineage to show that he is the rightful king descended from David. But we also have to interact with the fact that a royal family according to the way the Lord thinks of royal families, is not a group that like sits in a castle and waves from their limo and flies helicopters and leads fabulous lives. The Savior's model of leadership is the greatest shall be the least and the servant of all. 
So the royal family wasn't expected to be this distant group that rules from a throne and is rich and powerful and fabulous. The royal family is expected to be with the people, blessing and lifting and helping, like a good example of the type of king uh, that I think the Savior's going for is King Benjamin in the Book of Mormon, who says, I've labored with you in the fields. I fought alongside you in battles. I haven't asked anybody to do anything that I wasn't willing to do myself. And that is the type of royal family or priesthood that Abraham is going to be the father of. Now, part of what's emphasized here is that his descendants will be um, the, the royal family, the priesthood. But another thing we need to keep in mind as well is that this is a royal family that anybody can join. Whether you're a member of, the, of uh, Abraham's family, like a literal blood descendant, which a lot of people are, frankly, Abraham's family is spread all over the world, or even if you're not, it doesn't really matter. It's more about the choices that you make. You could be a blood descendant of Abraham, but not be part of the royal family. And you could have no relation to Abraham uh, other than the fact that you choose to make the same covenants as him and you're adopted into the royal family, if that makes sense. So this passage here sets up the idea of who and what Abraham is going to be and why he's going to be so important. So let's jump from Abraham chapter 2, and now let's jump into the book of Genesis, starting in verse 12. You can see here some of the same things. Verse 1, Abram, get out of thy country. I will make thee a great nation. I will bless them, the bless thee, and curse them, that curse thee. And in thy seed shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Same blessing is in Abraham chapter 2, just not quite as detailed in explaining the priesthood. Abraham gets married, and then here comes the second P uh, in the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 7 of Genesis 12 the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And there he builded an altar unto the Lord and appeared unto him. So the second P, the first one's priesthood, remember? Second one is property. The Lord goes out of his way to say, I'm leading you into a new place, a new land, and I'm going to bless you to have the land which you see. In fact, flip over to Genesis chapter 13, and this second promise is even more direct. Verse 14 of Genesis 13, the Lord said unto Abram, after Lot was separated from him, lift up now thine eyes, look from the place where thou art northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land which thou seest to thee will I give it and to thy seed forever. Now this sets up a lot of the rest of the Old Testament. The land that Abram inherits is called Canaan, uh, later just called Israel because Abram's descendants are called Israel. Today we know it as Palestine, but he's given this new land, this fresh start, this opportunity to build and become a nation on his own. So priesthood and property are the first two. And now the rest of these chapters spend their time explaining the other promise, which is posterity. But before we get to that, let's look at a couple things. Um, flip to chapter 14. And part of these stories serve to illustrate that Abraham isn't just a good guy, he's also a good leader. When they get to the land in chapter 13, he divides the land between himself and Lot. He's incredibly generous, gives Lot exactly what he wants and makes do with what he has. So he's not selfish and he's courageous. We already know he's courageous because in Abraham chapter one, he stands up to these idolatrous priests. But now we see that he is courageous in his later life because if you flip over to chapter uh, 14, Lot is captured by these kings that live near the place where Lot settled, which Lot didn't settle in the best place either. He lives near a, a city called Sodom. 
<laughs> and another city called Gomorrah that are going to go into the story, but we won't deal with that now. But a group of kings raid Sodom and Gomorrah, and they kidnap Lot. This is verse 12 of Genesis 14. Abram, brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom and his goods and departed. So Abram, when he finds out that Lot has been captured, uh, organizes everything he can. Verse 14, he heard that his brother was taken captive. That's Lot, actually his nephew. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan and divided them against himself. And he and his servants by night and smote them and pursued them into Hobah, which is on the left hand of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods and the women also to the people. Now, a couple interesting things happen. Uh, this proves that Abram is personally courageous. Uh, he goes out, takes his servants, fixes the problem, rescues Lot. But what this episode is primarily valuable for is showing us another trait of Abraham's personality, which is not only that he's a great leader, but that he's a great disciple. You see, there's an interesting thing that happens here, which is when Abram returns victorious, some of the local kings meet him. These are monarchs ruling local cities, but there's one that gets singled out for special treatment and one that is curious if you're just going by the biblical text. It says in verse 18, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. Now, I know you have heard the name Melchizedek before. Melchizedek was king of a nearby city called Salem. And what's curious about this episode is even though in the Old Testament, Abram is held up as the guy, the righteous person, the person that did what was right under any circumstances, he is seen as deferring to Melchizedek here. It actually says, if you jump down a little bit further, that Abram, uh, verse 20, uh, gave tithes to uh, Melchizedek. So one story we've got to ask is, where, who is Melchizedek and how does he fit into this? This is actually a big chunk of the story that's missing and a big connector of Abram back to the fathers that he wants to have a lineage from. So um, for this, you're going to want to go to the Joseph Smith translation of Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20. This is such a huge um, addition to the text that it didn't fit into the footnotes in your scriptures. You're going to have to go to the appendix in the back of your Bible, um, and there you'll find in the JST appendix, Genesis 14, some backstory about Melchizedek. Now, some of this is taken directly from the Book of Mormon, where in the Book of Alma, specifically chapter 13, um, Alma gives the backstory of Melchizedek and why Melchizedek was so amazing. We're assuming this is material from the brass plates that the Nephites had that gives a more extensive background. But here's the backstory of Melchizedek, JST, Genesis 14. Uh, verse 25, Melchizedek lifted up his voice and blessed Abram. Now, Melchizedek was a man of faith who wrought righteousness. And when a child, he feared God and stopped the mouths of lion and quenched the violence of fire. And thus, having been approved of God, he was ordained a high priest after the order of the covenant, which God made with Enoch. It being after the order of the son, which came, order came not by man, nor by the will of man, neither by father nor mother, neither by beginning of days nor end of years, but of God. It was delivered unto men by the calling of his own voice, according to his own will, and to as many as believed on his name. Now, in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And you'll see those words, order, show up, but the JST clarifies that the order, in verse 28, was the order of the Son of God. 
This also aligns with section 107 of the Doctrine and Covenants, where it says that the priesthood's name is not Melchizedek priesthood. Melchizedek priesthood is the name we use today to avoid too frequent reference to the name of deity, but the actual name of the priesthood is the holy priesthood after the order of the Son of God. So it's likely that Melchizedek somehow plays a role in inducting Abraham into this priesthood that's going to be connected back to the fathers. A couple other interesting things about Melchizedek that we'll hit on right here. Um, 33, Melchizedek was a priest of this order, the order of the sun. He obtained peace in Salem. And by the way, Salem is thought by many to be the place where Jerusalem is later on built and was called the Prince of Peace. Prince of Peace is a title you should be familiar with too. Someone that we all know and love and that cares about us. And then it says this, his people wrought righteousness and obtained heaven and sought for the city of Enoch, which God had before taken, separating it from the earth, having reserved it unto the latter days or the end of the world. So this explains a couple of other things. Like if Melchizedek is the priest that Abram is serving under, why doesn't he show up more prominently in the narrative? Well, this tells us in verse 34 that the reason why Melchizedek kind of drops out of the narrative and doesn't appear again is because his people obtained heaven. And what does it mean when it says they obtained heaven? It says they sought for the city of Enoch, which God had taken. Apparently, Abram and Salem were taken up into heaven like the city of Enoch was before them, and they were removed from the earth. This explains a couple of things. First, why Melchizedek leaves the record. Secondly, a couple chapters later on, Abram is trying to find a wife for his son Isaac, but he can't find any women in the area that he feels like are suitable. Now, a major question would be, why doesn't he just go to Salem? It seems like there's plenty of wonderful, wonderful people there, uh, including women that could become Abram's son-in-law. Probably by this point, Salem had been taken into heaven. So instead, Abram has to serve, send his servant all the way uh, back to his homeland. And that's where he finds Rebecca, who's pretty great in her own right, too. So an interesting side story here. This is probably how the priest of the fathers connects Abraham, Abram, connects with Melchizedek, and Melchizedek uh, gives him the priesthood after he pays ties to him. Now, we've still got one more P to put into our... Um, our, our Abrahamic uh, covenants. So turn with me to chapter 15. And this is where the final and most important uh, one gets added into. Number one, after these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. Genesis 15.1. Fear not, Abram, I am thy sheed. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me seeing I go childless? And the steward of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. So Abram's last longing is that he wants posterity. That's the third piece, priesthood, property, posterity. Uh, the Lord tells him, verse 5, look down toward the heaven, tell the stars, and if thou be able to number them, he said, so shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and the Lord counted unto him for righteousness. Priesthood, property, posterity. The final thing that Abram really wants is posterity. He wants to have a family. And you can see why this is so important to him. Um, back then, family was everything. It's still that way today, isn't it? And Abram and Sarah, who's called Sarai at this point, are both faithful believers, but also wondering how and when this is going to be fulfilled. In fact, if you flip to 
chapter um, 16, this is Abram and Sarai trying to maybe be proactive, like maybe the way that we get our family isn't exactly how we thought it was going to be, that maybe the child will come to us, but not necessarily through Sarai. Sarai, desperate to have posterity, recruits uh, Hagar and gives her to Abram as a wife, and Abram and Hagar have a child named Ishmael. Uh, Ishmael is um, the heir of Abraham and has blessings given to him, but if you flip to chapter 17, uh, Ishmael is not the fulfillment of the promise that the Lord had made. In fact, chapter 17 is where this all starts to kind of uh, come together. Uh, the Lord appears to Abram in verse 1, chapter 17, and says, I am the Almighty, walk before me and be thou perfect. I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him, saying, Thy covenant is with thee, and thou shalt be a father of many nations. Neither shall thy name any more be called Abram, but thy name shall be Abraham, Abraham, for a father of many nations will I make thee. Abram means father, Abraham means father of many nations. I will make thee exceedingly fruitful, will make nations of thee, and kings shall come out of thee, and I will establish my covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God unto thee and to thy seed after thee. Now, Abraham recognizes this covenant. And I want to note two things here really fast. Abram, who becomes Abraham, he receives a new name, is not the only person who receives a new name here either. You scroll down a little bit further and go to verse 15. God said unto Abraham, as for Sarai, thy wife, thou shalt not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall she be. Sarah means princess, basically. So both Abraham and his wife together receive uh, a, a covenant and a blessing by receiving a new name. That might sound familiar to some of you, okay? And it's interesting that uh, even though we call this the Abrahamic covenant as sort of shorthand, it could just as easily be called the covenant of Abraham and Sarah because God makes it with both of them. The same promise of priesthood, property, and posterity comes to Sarah as well. In verse 16, Lord says, I will bless her and give thee a son. Also of her, I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations, kings of people shall be of her. Now, this would be an overwhelming spiritual experience, but one of the most human parts of the Bible here uh, is Abraham's reaction. If you go to verse 17, after this immense promise that Sarah is going to have a child and that he's going to be the heir, verse 17, Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, shall a child be born unto him that is a hundred years old? And shall Sarah that is 90 years old bear? Abraham just doesn't believe that this is literal, that Sarah, who's in her 90s, is really going to be able to have a child. Um, in fact, Abram in verse 18 basically says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, oh, do you mean this is going to be fulfilled through Ishmael? In verse 19, the Lord reiterates his promise. No, Sarah, thy wife, shall bear thee a son indeed. Thou shalt call his name Isaac. I will covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with the seed after him. And the Lord is gracious enough to say, I'm going to bless Ishmael too. In verse 20, Ishmael, I have heard thee. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him exceedingly. Twelve princes shall he beget, and I will make him a great nation. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, which Sarah shall bear unto thee at this said time next year. So uh, Abraham is a very human person. He just doesn't believe that this is possible. And the Lord has to come back and say, not only is it possible, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen next year. So priesthood, property, posterity. Let's talk a little bit about that, because 
all of these chapters should hold resonance uh, for members of the church, particularly those that have made sacred covenants in the house of the Lord or the temple. Uh, the covenants that God makes with Abraham, which we call the Abrahamic covenant, are the same covenants that God makes with men and women in the temple today. There's some slight differences. Uh, for instance, the property that we are promised in the temple isn't the land of Canaan. It's, well, the ability and right to have all that the Father has. It's the universe. I think the reason why um, these chapters in Genesis and Abraham talk about the land of Canaan as the property deeded through the covenant is because that's what Abraham could conceive of. In Abraham's world, where honestly, you probably couldn't travel more than a couple hundred miles from the place where you were born, the Lord said, everything that you see is yours, I'll give it to you. In the modern version of the Abrahamic covenant, it's that we receive all that the Father has, or the universe, essentially. He gives us everything that he has. As time has progressed, we've, as, as, a, as a group of people, as humans, grown from being able to just comprehend the land around us to the world we live in, and now we're actually looking out at the universe with its innumerable worlds and all the wonders that exist in it, and that's the covenant that God makes with us. The covenant that God gives to Abraham is the same covenant that he makes to each of us. Our families, our descendants, will become a royal priesthood. We have the property, which is the uh, inheritance of the universe. And finally, there's the posterity. The promise is made to every man and woman that enters these covenants and becomes faithful that they can have the same blessings of Abraham, which is a posterity as numerous as the stars in heaven. And that's probably um, the most important of the three. If you were to sit down and really think about it, God is the ruler of the universe. But the title that he asked to be called by his father, that's the most important title to him, that our heavenly parents together achieved these promises and now have an innumerable posterity. And that is how our posterity becomes innumerable too, is that we become like heavenly father and heavenly mother and receive the same blessings as them. Now, this covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is sometimes in scripture called the new and everlasting covenant. It's only new in the sense that it's renewed when the Lord opens a new dispensation. Everlasting is probably the more important title there. Now, modern prophets and apostles have given their interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant and what it means. For instance, President Russell M. Nelson in the April 2000, uh, I'm sorry, the October 2011 General Conference gave an excellent address. I highly recommend it, a supplementary reading for these chapters called Covenants. And in that, this modern prophet walked through the promises made of the Abrahamic covenant. He said this, the covenant God made with Abraham and later reaffirmed with Isaac and Jacob or Israel is of transcendent significance. It contains several promises, including Jesus Christ would be born through Abraham's lineage. If you go to that lineage provided in the book of Matthew, the lineage traces Jesus back to David, the king of Israel, but then it goes a step further and traces Jesus' lineage back to Abraham as well. Jesus is part of that royal priesthood, that posterity that's promised to Abraham. President Nelson adds Abraham's posterity would be numerous, entitled to an eternal increase, and also entitled to bear the priesthood. So Abraham's family is going to be the priesthood holders of the earth, the people that take care of everybody on earth. 
Next, President Nelson said, Abram would become a father of many nations, and certain lands would be inherited by his posterity, but all nations of the earth would be blessed by his seed. Again, that concept of a royal family, but not the kind of royal family that sits around and basks in luxury, the type of royal family that's out there blessing and helping and assisting everyone along the way. Think of it this way, the royal family isn't the uh, executive guests on the cruise that mortal life is. Imagine Earth as a cruise ship. This is an analogy a friend of mine likes to use. Um, the seed of Abraham are the crew of the ship. It's not their job to sit back and relax. It's their job to work and take care of everybody and hopefully recruit new crew members so that we can get more work done as we go. In exchange for that, we have greater access and understanding to how the ship works, what its purpose is, and where it's going. That's a good trade-off that we use our lives to bless and help others. And in exchange, Heavenly Father grants us greater knowledge about the purpose of life and how it works. President Nelson adds one last tenet of the Abrahamic covenant. He says, the covenant would be everlasting even through a thousand generations. Now, a thousand generations is probably just shorthand for ever, always, eternity, basically. Um, now, President Nelson also adds a couple other things that are important for us to recognize here. He said this, some of us are the literal seed of Abraham. Others are gathered into his family by adoption. The Lord makes no distinction. So whether you're a literal descendant of Abraham or whether you're adopted, we just don't care. And that's the greatest thing about this royal family is that it's a royal family that anybody can join. President Nelson continues, together we receive these promised blessings if we seek the Lord and obey his commandments. But if we don't, we lose the blessings of the covenant. It's a royal family that you could also um, leave based on your choices if you don't choose to honor the covenants. To assist us, his church provides patriarchal blessings to give each recipient a vision of his or her future, as well as a connection to the past, even a declaration of lineage back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So it's a blessing that anybody can extend to, and part of the function of the church through patriarchal blessings and other means is to help us understand our connection to them. You'll note patriarchal blessings never say you're adopted or you're a literal seed. It's just here's the blessings that you have and that have been given to you. Now, let's pull back and, and take the big picture here, okay? At the first of the opening of the book of Abraham, Abram says, I wanted the priesthood of the fathers. I wanted this familial connection. He wanted to transcend the sometimes terrible environment that he grew up in and become something bigger, something better, and something more. Because of his righteousness, God rescues him and makes him a priest. Then as you walk through the book of Abraham, he is taught and instructed. The Lord shows him premortality. The Lord shows him the complexities of the universe, including astronomy and the larger principles related to that. The Lord shows him the creation of the earth. Abram is brought into God's presence, and then he's promised all the blessings of exaltation. So he's made a priest, he receives instruction, he goes into the presence of God, and then receives promises for exaltation. That should sound familiar to a lot of you. And I'll just say this, um, these passages and the Abrahamic covenant are really important part of knowing what your blessings are as a disciple of Jesus Christ and a member of the Lord's Church, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The three Ps of the Abrahamic Covenant priesthood, 
property, and posterity are the same promises made to all men and women. Abraham and Sarah were the first ones that, to write down essentially the covenant in detail. I'm sure that it was the same covenant made with Adam and Eve and Enoch and Noah and everybody that came before. But today it's called the Abrahamic covenant because we honor this wonderful, wonderful person who grew up in a negative environment but was able to transcend it. Now, just like Abraham, not all of us have been born into the best environment or families. Some of us have that blessing, some of us don't. Um, it doesn't matter where you come from. It matters what your choices are that you make. It doesn't matter the lot that you've been given in life. What matters is that you use your agency to choose and make yourself into what the Lord wants you to be. I bear you my testimony that just like Abraham, all of us can have the blessings of the gospel. All of us can hold priesthood, um, receive the blessings of the property that God has, which is all things, and an innumerable posterity, just like our heavenly parents have. The Abrahamic covenant becomes the covenant that each one of us makes with God through our faithfulness. And just like Abraham, and maybe one of the best parts of the story, is that Abraham struggled to see beyond his mortal life. He didn't see how the blessing of posterity could relate to him because he and his wife were too old to have children. He didn't know that the Lord had a way prepared for those blessings to come. But my testimony to you is, if you're waiting for one of those blessings to come, if you're faithful, they're going to come. Uh, there's a really famous quote by Elder Holland where he says, some blessings uh, don't come in this life. Some blessings don't come until heaven, but they do come. Just like Abraham was able to finally have a son through Sarah when they were in their hundreds and nineties, there's going to be a way prepared for you to receive all the blessings of the gospel, regardless of what your background is. I bear you that testimony in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So thank you so much for being with me today as we've walked through these scriptural passages. It's a delight to get to sit down and share the scriptures with you. And I hope you're having as much fun studying the Old Testament as I am. Thanks for your attention and um, subscribe. And you can go to our website at Cedar Fort Publishing and Media for more great podcasts from other wonderful authors that work with Cedar Fort. My name's Casey Griffiths. It has been a privilege teaching you and I will see you soon. 50 Relics of the Restoration highlights the history of the church through sacred objects gathered throughout its history. Included with the objects are some of the most vivid and interesting stories of the Latter-day Saints. One of the most intriguing aspects of our church's history is that it is still being discovered. Just as early Christians sought out pieces of the cross or searched for the location of Noah's Ark, it is natural for members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to seek to interact with their history. The objects in this book constitute a glimpse at the richness of days gone by and allow us to see, heft, and handle those now priceless objects that our forebearers did. In this volume, you will find photos and commentary on objects such as The Brown Seer Stone Liberty Jail's Door David Patton's Rifle Joseph Smith's Handkerchief Jamesy Talmage's Jesus the Christ Manuscript Joseph and Hiram Smith's Death Masks Hiram Smith's Martyrdom Clothing And much more.